Hello. You are listening to the Grieving Parents Sharing Hope podcast. We are here to walk with parents on their unwanted journey of child loss, guiding them to a place of hope, light, and purpose, not in spite of their child's death, but as a way to honor his or her life. And now, here is your host, author, speaker, and bereaved parent, Laura Deal. Hi. Today, I have another guest, and before getting started, I want to give her a bit of an introduction. Ann Moss Rogers is what she herself calls an emotionally naked professional public speaker because of the willingness to expose herself publicly with the raw and real pain of a mom whose son died by suicide based on drug addictions. She now devotes her life to bringing truthful awareness to these taboo subjects and is an award-winning author and suicide prevention trainer. Now, I want to let you know we're not getting into gory details of suicide or anything like that. Don't think there are going to be triggers along that line. So please don't feel like you won't be able to listen to this episode, Afraid of Triggers, here. So here is my conversation with Ann Moss. Well, I have a guest with me today, and her name is Ann Ross Modgers. <laughs> I just... <laughs> You gotta leave that in. Okay. And her name is Ann Moss Rogers. There we go. I didn't know that was a tongue twister until it started to come out. (laughs) That's right. And the most important part of that is Ann Moss is my first name. Okay. All right. Not Ann. Everybody calls me Ann, and it's not Ann, it's Ann Moss. Ann Moss. Well, that's different. There's got to be a story behind that name. I won't ask it now. Maybe I'll ask it later. (laughs) No, no, you can ask that. Uh, Okay, what's the story, Ann Moss? Moss was my grandmother's maiden name. In the South, when a name was dying out, they would attach a last name to a first name to keep that name going. So I grew up with Mary Duane, uh, Jane Dove, Mary Erna, all, you know, last names attached to first names. And we went by both names. Wow. Okay. I will try to remember that. (laughs) 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 I'm sure you're used to Anne, but we'll use the full name here, the true name. So I have been waiting to have you on for at least a good year. So I'm so glad to be able to finally be doing this. So thank you for joining me. And it's kind of early for you this morning. Not super early, but early enough, right? It's not bad. So at the beginning of this year in 2021, I did a couple of podcasts that were for uh, newly bereaved parents. And I contacted several other bereaved parents who are kind of out there in the world helping other parents you know, get through this darkness. And you were one of those. And I loved what you shared. Because one of the things that you said was that you think it's important for a newly bereaved parent to know that to tell yourself, I will survive. I will survive. I don't know how yeah. I, I don't know what it's going to look like. But I will survive. That's pretty important, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, it's just one of those things you got to tell yourself because the pain is so enormous. It is so overwhelming. And it just feels like your whole life has exploded in your face. And I don't know where it came from. It just kind of pinged into my head. And that is what I held on to with the edges of my fingernails. And that's when I decided a lot of people have been through this. They have survived. 
and I need to model after those who have survived and go find those people. And that's what I did. Oh, that, yeah, go find those people. Exactly. You know, it's interesting because I had the exact same moment, a turning point. It was later in my journey, but I remember standing in the cemetery and I used to wander the cemetery, read the tombstones. I knew there were younger kids buried there, teens buried there. And I remember one day looking out at all of these tombstones and thinking every single one of these represents a person that other people loved. And they probably didn't think they could get through it either, especially if it was a child. And if they could get through this, I can get through this. Exactly. And then also another important aspect that came right after that is As much as it hurts right now, it will never hurt as much as getting the news. That part is over and I will never hurt like that again. Like sitting in the back of that police car and getting that news for the first time was the most devastating moment of my life. And I've had some zingers, Uh brain tumor survivor. I've been attacked at knife point. I've been struck by lightning. I've died on the table during a diagnostic procedure. I've broken my neck. Mm. But that moment, and if I could survive that, I really could survive everything. And that is how I made it from one moment to the next, one day to the next, Mm. one week to the next. Yes. Especially right at the beginning. Yeah. At that point, it's almost like one breath to the next, isn't it? Yes, it is. And Mm -hmm. I mean, literally grief has so many physical symptoms I wasn't aware of. And one of those is that dry mouth and then that that I can't breathe. You know, it's like it is suspended somewhere and it's Mm -hmm. like this is supposed to be automatic. And it would just it would just. I would just catch and I'd be like, I can't breathe. And Uh of course it came back, but I wasn't prepared for the physical symptoms, the heaviness in the chest, the loss of hair, the rashes, um, the dizziness. I'd bump into walls. I Mm. mean, it was the forgetfulness. Yes. (laughs) Like your mind is totally gone. (laughs) Right. But I think at first it's nature's anesthesia especially Uh that first year. I think that we have that benefit. And I think that's what makes the second year so hard is you don't have Uh nature's anesthesia anymore and you're kind of facing it full on. Yeah, and we expect it to be better because we've been through everything for that first year and we think the second year is going to be better. And for so many of us, it's worse as if that could possibly happen. Right. But I want everybody to understand that your pain has purpose, that they are the building blocks to emotional healing. And think of it this way. When you go have knee surgery, you come home and you hurt like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's healing. It's swelling up, but eventually it goes down and you can walk on that leg and you can walk on that knee. And it's better than it was before. Well, I can't say that life is always better now that my son has died, but in some ways it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm meeting so many beautiful people like like you, um, exploring different aspects of my life, finding out different things about myself Mm -hmm. that I didn't see before. Mm -hmm. And my love has deepened. I'm able to you know, it, it does have benefits, although 
And it took a long time to get there and to see them. Yeah, it's definitely a process, isn't it? It is. It's a process, but that pain has a purpose. So every time you get hit with that tsunami of grief, also those really intense grief, grief episodes, they last 60 to 90 seconds. While you may kind of have this undercurrent of grief all day, you know the ones that I'm talking about, the kind of mm-hmm. ones that you burst out crying or they just take you mm-hmm. to your knees. Yeah, 60 to 90 seconds. You can survive that and, you know, breathe through it, feel the feelings because you can't heal if you can't feel. Oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah. We've gotten into some really good stuff right away. This is awesome. <laughs> I want to back up and let you share Charles with us. Can you tell us your story? Sure. Charles was always like this really effervescent kid. He always thought very differently. And I could tell from an early age, he had the makings of of a creative genius because he saw the world in such a different way, very charismatic. So even at 18 months, people were so drawn to him. And I remember being in the food court one day and he's just playing with all these other kids. And I noticed that he just, all the kids kind of were drawn to him all the parents were drawn to him. And I thought, what is it about him that just has that aura? And that is what made him the funniest, most popular kid in school. So really what it was is that he was a deep feeler. And he was, he really listened to people and made them feel heard. Now, you know, I doubt that was the case at 18 months, but In his life, that's why he was so beloved. It wasn't, I mean, he was adorable. He was really cute, but that (laughs) wasn't why. It was because people felt heard. And that is the greatest gift you can give another human being. Yeah. And then at 14, my, my son, I'll never cuss. He was saying, I'll never drink. And in one year, some switch flipped. And I think it was his thoughts of suicide intensified and to make them go away. He started uh, using drugs and alcohol to numb those feelings. And were you aware and of the suicidal thoughts when he was that young? Was never aware of them. Okay. I believe they started probably as early as fifth grade. And what kids will reach who reach out to me now online will tell me and then presentations they'll tell me that they've been struggling with thoughts of suicide since they were like eight years old and they're now 15 and so basically if you've struggled with those thoughts of suicide since you were a young child and you've never really told anyone then they start to take up a lot more real estate in your brain Mm. and you start ruminating on it more so we're not letting those feelings out And he certainly wasn't, he was a boy. And we don't, you know, it's not so accepted to talk Mm -hmm. about stuff like that, particularly in 2012 when he was starting to really struggle with these kind of things. So he became depressed as an adolescent. He had been anxious. I think he became more depressed. He started to struggle with thoughts of suicide. 
And that's when his drug use escalated. We ended up kidnapping our son out of his bed and taking him to a wilderness program. You don't do that because you've got your kid with a beer and a joint. You do that because you think your child's life is truly at risk. From there, it was recommended that he go to a therapeutic boarding school. He didn't love any of this. And it certainly wasn't plan A. And it certainly wasn't something we would have done unless we were absolutely desperate. Right. Was it the right thing? I don't know. I felt like it was our only option. So he comes home in 2014, having spent some 22 months outside our home in some kind of placement. What I didn't know is he hadn't really developed new and exciting, healthy coping strategies Mm -hmm. as we had hoped. Mm -hmm. He went back to using drugs and alcohol and ends up becoming addicted to heroin. Now, I believe he was probably addicted to heroin for at least 10 months. I didn't know it. And I feel really stupid about that until a friend of mine who's in recovery said, well, I was in my parents' home and I shot up for 10 years and they never knew. Wow. So Charles never used the needles. So we didn't have paraphernalia. I didn't really know it could be snorted. Uh, that's how stupid that was. Yeah, I'm, I'm very naive on that thing, those things too. Plus, it was tough keeping up with which substance he was abusing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, well, we got to keep him away from heroin. And, you know, that had already arrived and mm-hmm. I didn't know it. So he eventually confesses and we send him to detox and then rehab. And then he goes to a recovery house. And the recovery house didn't allow you to be there on Suboxone or Methadone. So we had to take him off of that. And I believe that wasn't probably the best decision. But this was a medication he was on for his mental health. uh, That is a medication for those who are in recovery from substance use disorder. Okay. And yeah, they would they call him it, to be on it. No, I mean, that was the thinking at the time. It's mm. called medication assisted treatment, MAT okay. for short. Kind of, you know, it's controversial at the time. Uh, a lot of people were saying it's trading one drug for another. But I have since learned that medication assisted therapy is really, really important mm-hmm. to uh, especially young people. And who's to say? when they should come off of it or right or how or we didn't have anywhere in our home for him to come back to because we had just sold our house and we were going to be in the airbnbs for like 10 weeks Mm. and you know we couldn't take a child a dog ourselves i mean we couldn't get (laughs) those properties weren't available So he goes to the recovery house. He relapses within 24 hours. Oh, my. uh, Eventually, he ends up back in a detox facility, and he sees a friend there that he knows. And he's all checked in, but they walk out. They just wanted one more party. They go right back to recovery, which Mm. they never did. He went through a depressive episode. Everybody was gone. And uh, he took his own life while going through withdrawal Mm. and the method left no question so he was going through withdrawal a lot of people think that 
he died of a medication overdose, but it was far more visceral than that. And he felt like we had abandoned him and that we didn't love him. And I told him that we loved him. And we go and we look back at tough love. I hate that word now Mm. because it just doesn't suit every child. And you have to decide what you're going to do as a family. It's really, really difficult to make those decisions because they're all life and death. Yes. But I had no idea I was fighting this enemy in his head. And what I recognized is that I would have seen those signs of suicide because he said classic things and he did classic things that could have been bullet point under the phrase, Mm. what do people thinking of suicide say and do? Mm. But no one was talking about it. And someone needed to, and I appointed myself and I pushed myself in the spotlight. It was uncomfortable. It was agonizing, but it just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it made me cringe. And I'm like, I'm making him a poster boy for for suicide when he was yeah. so much more than that. Right. That that one moment in his life. Yes. So thank you for letting me talk about him because he really was an amazing human being. Oh my gosh, he was so funny. <laughs> oh, nobody could make me laugh like that. And mm-hmm. I would be doubled over. He was so good at timing. And it was his written lyrics that really helped me understand who he was inside. And since his death, my love has evolved, you know, yes. to different yes. kind of love with my beloved dad. Mm-hmm. I understand him better, which took me a while to kind of wrap my head around that, you know, a lot of guilt and work on that. Mm. It's, it's taken a lot of work to get where I am today, but I'm so glad I did the work. I do feel like I could leap a building in a single bound having, <laughs> having done it. Mm. Now, I've read and heard you say you didn't think it was possible to get to the other side of this pain and darkness for a lot of us, but I think especially for uh, parents in your situation where a child ends their own life and there's so many more regrets and guilt and layers of grief that you have to work through, you couldn't see that far ahead. You you couldn't see life without him. And if you could have seen where you are now, I'm guessing you wouldn't have believed it. No, no way. I think it's really important when you're in that moment to stay in the present or go back and look at before everything happened, you know, and it took me a while to get back to all the VHS tapes with him as a little boy and his brother. and Because it's painful, um, isn't it? It is. And I expected it to be painful and I thought it would be too painful. Mm-hmm. But what I saw on those VHS tapes was that my son grew up in a house of love. Yes. <laughs> that there wasn't something we did yes. that caused what happened. Mm -hmm. So it gave me a renewed sense of hope. And I didn't expect to get that from those tapes. So they became not something I was afraid of, but something that I could embrace. And I didn't expect that. I was like, okay, I got to grit my teeth. 
and see these beautiful memories. And I'm like, we went to the beach, we had bonfires, we had baked cakes together, we had slip and slides, they made <laughs> stupid movies on YouTube. And you probably got to see some of his silliness that you oh love so gosh. much. Oh my gosh, he's got his own YouTube channel. I still hear from kids who said, you know, it's been 15 years since he did those videos because he did them in middle schools, Time Boy 1408. I mean, they're stupid, you know, <laughs> kid videos. But some of those children reached out and said, I was going to take my life. And that's what kept me mm. alive is watching those stupid, silly videos. And I waited for each and every one of them. Mm, wow. What you shared earlier this year that I referred to at the beginning about, you know, having those thoughts, telling yourself, I will survive. That's a mindset, isn't it? It's, it's taking control of our thoughts. And that's so important. It is. I think we have to acknowledge how we feel in the moment. Mm -hmm. And if it's not supporting your healing, I would put it in a train car and I would visualize it leaving the station. Mm -hmm. So I'd sit with it, acknowledge it, put it in the train car, let it leave the station. And I would try to reframe it in some way. Or I would go outside. It was freezing cold that winter after he died. And so I ran a lot. Thank goodness I could run then because it helped a lot to be able to just pound that pavement. I mean, it would hurt so much at first. I didn't feel like going. I didn't want to do this. Mm -hmm. It'd be 12 degrees. I would find out later that extreme cold and extreme exercise are two of the most healthiest and easiest coping strategies. Hmm. And I was doing them both at once and didn't even know. Another strategy I used because that first thing in the morning is the hardest time for a lot of us, it, you know, late at night or first thing in the morning. To me, first thing in the morning was the worst. You were asleep, you wake up. You feel, oh my God, this is my reality. Yes. And he was alive in that dream I had 15 minutes ago. So there's that temptation that I don't want to get out of bed. Right. So I made a routine of you don't have to get out of bed, but just turn around, put your feet on the floor. And I would sit there for a minute and then I would set one more step because I couldn't think. Right. I was not able to think, OK, I need to brush my teeth and get in the shower. And all that was too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So it's just like put your feet on the floor. Then what's the next step? Go to the bathroom because <laughs> the bladder is <laughs> saying. I need to be relieved. <laughs> and then I would go brush your teeth. So I've just kind of set those things one thing at a time. I have something called dyscalculia, which is sequencing gets off for me when I get stressed. I get the wrong time, the wrong day. I, I get things all out of order. Mm -hmm. And I would do things like I'd turn on the shower and I would get in the shower and I would still be dressed. <laughs> Oh, my. Or uh -huh. I would put on my clothes and go, I need to redo this because I forgot the undergarments. <laughs> oh, uh <-huh. laughs> so We're just I would have to come... real here. <laughs> right. I know. And, uh -huh. and I would have to. And so I would sit down with my intention and go when I get dressed and then I'd kind of map out what I would do every morning. I go to that drawer and get that out, that drawer and get that out. 
and then I would have it in the right order. So I had a lot of trouble with the sequencing. And of course, as you're trying to get ready in the morning, what is usually maybe 30 minutes to an hour, depending on who you are, was twice as long because there were so many times where I just had to curl up on the floor and acknowledge that grief tsunami that hit yes. me all of a sudden. And I'll honor that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be like, well, where was I in the process? Because it's hard to bookmark yeah. where you were. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, we talk about, you know, our brain and how forgetful we are and how fuzzy and just nothing makes sense. And I mean, just like you said, even getting dressed in the morning is overwhelming. And I know for me, I would walk out of a store and totally forget where I, I don't even remember going to the store, much yeah. less which door I went in to be able to find my car to get out. And, you know, people who've never experienced the loss of a child in this kind of the way our brain just malfunctions like that. It's like, oh, ha ha ha. Yeah, I forget where I park my car, too, sometimes. And it's like, no, it's different than that. It's yeah. like I don't even have information to pull from in my brain. I just you just stand there and cry because you don't know what to do. So it's I mean, it's it's a real thing. And, and I think it's so relieving as a, a bereaved parent in those early weeks and months when you're, you know, that I, I thought I was going through early Alzheimer's and it's such a relief yeah. when you find out that's just part of, of our grief. That's just part of what we're going through. We're in an altered universe where mm -hmm. I'm watching everything happen in fast motion and I'm over here in, in oil mm -hmm. or sludge moving at, less than half the pace and the whole world looks like this speed train mm -hmm. and I felt like I was in an altered universe and there were many times where I would just be kind of standing there and I felt like everybody was going around me like I was a rock and a river mm. <laughs> yeah that's a good way to describe it and there was a couple of years where I felt like no one could even see me mm-hmm I remember the day that I felt like people could see me again, which, yeah. you know, I'd never disappeared. It just felt right. that way. Yes. Yeah. So if we tell ourselves that we're never going to get better, it's always going to be like this. We're kind of sabotaging ourselves, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. That's a self-fulfilling prospect. Yeah. If that comes into your head, then you need to argue with yourself. So I have this little alter ego thing that mm -hmm. I do. So yeah, that, that came in and I'd be like, but my alter ego has to fight with that. And they have to have a kind, you know, a good fight where they present both their sides. And then my logical side works through that. Mm -hmm. And that has been just a you're really fighting great the logic strategy. With the feelings. And those feelings right. totally overwhelm the logic. Right. It's look at the facts. Mm -hmm. So when I go back and I look at my grief journey, I can now pull out actually dialectical behavior strategies that I was using that I had no idea that's what they were. Like opposite action and uh, with the putting your feet mm -hmm. on the side of the bed. And then just being able to manage just your everyday life. And so I could kind of pick apart and go, oh, wow, I was using these strategies and mm. I didn't even know what they were called. 
for what they yeah. were. I just knew they were working. I'm sure because you are have become a huge voice in the world of suicide and suicide prevention. And I know that you, um, because of what you do, you end up talking to, I'm sure, a lot of parents whose children have died. And mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure you've probably also come across parents. I know I have. They don't want to survive. They don't want to get past this. How do you help them? How do you, I mean, we can't really help them, can we? Because they have to decide to fight for it because it is a fight. Well, I will tell you, you can help them. And that is, first of all, you listen with empathy. Yes. And I will say that one third of parents who lose a child struggle with some level of suicidality in, mm -hmm. in that continuum of their grief journey. My friend Gray lost her only child to suicide and she lives with a mental illness. And she said for the first three years, I lived because I felt obligated to live. Uh, and she said that was what got me through. Uh -huh. So on my next email to my followers, my tribe, I'm presenting an index card of survival. Yeah. So I reach out to my list consists of people whose lives are not perfect. And mm -hmm. a lot of those. And I'll say I'm on that list. And it's very good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad. Oh, I've just gotten so many answers to the coping strategies. I'm so addicted to reading what everybody said, like spending mm -hmm. hours reading it. <laughs> it's been amazing. So I just, I just get so much from everybody on that list. And that's been a huge part of my own healing is just to kind of have that group to pull from and get these kind notes and be able to write back to people. And it's just been really lovely experience and something I never really expected to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, did you ask something? Because I have grief. Well, right well we were just talking about it. parents who feel like they don't want to get past this. They don't want to survive. Okay, so I, this is an important point. That's why I'm glad I asked you. So listening, letting the other person feel heard, not shaming them, not bringing up, oh, you have so much to live for. What about mm -hmm. your family? You need to leave all that alone and simply focus and meet that person where they are, which is in extreme pain. Mm -hmm. And just say, I'm here, tell me more, I'm listening. What we want that person to do is reach out for support and we can usher them to that support. So my friend Ginger struggles a lot with suicidality since the suicide of her son. So when she gets to that moment, what she does is she thinks about her reasons to live. And then she has a network of friends she reaches out to, some of whom will come spend the night at her house. Now she has a long-term partner and he's wonderful, but he's not always in town. And when he's not in town, one of these eight people can come over and spend the night with her that night. As long as I have a friend over, I just feel that warm blanket of feeling protected mm. and, you know, you just accept kind of protected that. from myself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. 
and and like the grief it's part of working through something and on my index card i want people to write down uh what makes life worth living or what thing in the past is a beautiful memory that you like to go back to Mm -hmm. and a lot of people say i don't have any i can't think of that right give yourself time Mm -hmm. right and i think for a lot of us when we really stop and think about it as much as we would rather go join our child because we feel like i have no reason to live here anymore because we can't think of those reasons or come up with those reasons just the fact that your child lived And you want to stay here to make sure that people know your child lived and that your child mattered. If, if you decide I'm done here and end your own life, who's going to carry on your child's life? Yeah. Who's going to carry forward that legacy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, who's going to care, who's going to still put that child in front of people so that they talk about them. Right. It's really hard when people are in that moment. A lot of people think of it as a choice when it's really something your brain is driving you to. But what I want everyone to understand is that suicidal continuum or the intense suicidality, 20 minutes and it has peaks again, 60 to 90 seconds for the really intense peaks where you want to take your life. And people kind of come out of that. So when they're in that intense moment, they seem like they're in a trance-like state. And they're telling you all kinds of things about themselves. It sounds like no matter what you do, you, they're just, you have no hope. You're not going to be able to, to do anything. But just by listening and sitting with another human being in their pain, it does make a huge difference. A hug makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. That human contact when, you know, when <laughs> sometimes you got to have a mask on. And that, that's been tough to deliver in a pandemic. But just sitting around watching old rom-coms, uh, you know, or if you're a guy sitting around and watching basketball games mm-hmm. or doing something active, it's really not fixing it we want to fix we want to say oh I have a great therapist (laughs) when what we really need to do is just be with that person and let them know they've been heard and you know not talk about this sunny place and eventually you can say well you know tell me share with me just one memory uh, about your past that uh, makes you smile and they'll say, uh-huh. I don't know, but I guarantee you their brains will start to ruminate on that and uh-huh. to try to come up with that memory. And that kind of goes towards that reason to live, but it, it we got to understand that 30% and every time I have like a group where we pull people, it almost like if they're nine people, Three of them have struggled with thoughts of suicide Mm. since their child's death. And it's not just death by suicide that triggers those thoughts, although those parents are at higher risk. Um, It's parents who've lost a child to any kind of death. And it is from 
I lost my infant was stillborn to, Mm -hmm. you know, I lost my 60 year old son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cancer accident. Yep. Gunshot wound. It, it we just can't doesn't. see a future without our child, even though we have other, if we have other children or we had things, so many things to live for before our child died. It's like all of that just goes away and we just want to be with our child. It just consumes us. Oh, it completely rearranges your whole being. Mm-hmm. That's why this takes so much time mm-hmm. because you've built this kind of, this is the way my life is. And when this happens, you have to go back to square one and rebuild your life without all the things you thought would be in Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And that's why I say reflect on some of the things, beautiful memories in the past, because you can't quite see what that future is going to bring. Putting your grief into action, like you've done with this podcast. That's how you put your own grief into action and helping others. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a healing step. Yes. So it's almost like coming full circle back to where we started that whole telling yourself, I will survive this. I can survive this. I remember hitting that one year mark. We, we kind of alluded to it. It's almost like going up a roller coaster, up, 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 up. And you think when you get the top at the top of that one year, you can finally start to coast a little bit and it just doesn't work that way. But you and I survived year one. Right. Survived year two. We We did. Survived year three. And it has become easier. I'd say it's softened. That's usually the way I put it. I say that it softened. You learn to accept the death and you learn to walk with grief. Right. And it becomes. In your life. Right. And it becomes more than just surviving at some point. Oh, yeah. And now I can enjoy other activities. I have forgiven myself. That took me a while to get to a place where I could say it's not all my fault. I couldn't control the outcome. And I will have that neck of regret and mm-hmm. not these long drawn out, go down the rabbit hole yes. on this coulda, woulda, shoulda roller coaster, which I did for mm-hmm. a long time. And I have that neck of regret and it's like, okay, I've acknowledged it, but I remind myself you've forgiven yourself and there's no reason to go back over that over and over. And you've done it a thousand times yes. and you came to the same conclusion. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can't undo it. You can't fix it. You weren't a perfect parent and you're not going to focus on the 5% of parenting you didn't do well, but focus on the 95% you did do well. Yes. Yes. I think that's a wonderful way to wrap this up. So Ann Moss, how can people connect with you? So I have a blog called Emotionally Naked, and I have a subscriber list of, I guess, a little over 6,000 now. And then um, I have a website, annmossrogers.com, and that is my professional speaking site and where you'll find my books. I also have a free ebook called Coping Strategies for Grief and Loss. Uh, Carla Helbert and I wrote that, and we're thinking of making a pet two traditionally published books. And I think that Carla and I might self-publish that next year. It's been (laughs) so popular and people are wanting the physical copy of it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope I can have you back again sometime. This has been a really good talk. I think it's been a lot of good things in here that our listeners are going to take away. I do want to ask you, though, do you have any final thoughts to share with the listeners, especially with Christmas coming in a few days and this whole new year coming? I know when we turn the calendar, we feel like we're leaving our child behind another year. Any last thoughts that you can share with, with our listeners? I think feel the feeling. And just acknowledge that those feelings and sit with them, but also know when to distract yourself so that you're not refiring hurtful emotions. So feel the feelings. And then when it kind of lifts, go do something, you Mm -hmm. know, go exercise, go outside, be with other people. Don't isolate, you know, or don't isolate for like days on end. You need those connections to to start to help that healing process. Right. Well, thanks, Anne. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I appreciate it. I don't know about you, but I feel like God has gifted Ann Moss with so much compassion and wisdom in the areas of suicide and grief. And as we all know, it came at a high price. I really hope you took away some helpful nuggets for wherever you are in this unwanted grief journey. I remember for the first three years into this journey after my daughter Becca died, I thought, Even if I could find a support group of some kind, I did not want to spend time around a bunch of people who were a mess like me. I thought we would just sit around and be morbid and cry and talk about our kids, and I would leave feeling worse than when I arrived. About three years in, I made myself go to a retreat in Indiana. I lived in Wisconsin. It was, I think, about a four-hour drive. And what I discovered was that it was wonderful being around a bunch of people who were a mess like me. They got it. I didn't have to wear a mask. I didn't have to apologize if there were some tears shed. It was wonderful. And I'm telling you this because GPS Hope has two weekend retreats coming up. There's one in March in Georgia, and there's one just for moms in April in Ohio. To find out more about them, click the link in the show notes, or you can just go to gpshope.org slash retreat. Also, we did the grief cruise. It was wonderful, and I hope more of you can join us next time. It is set for the end of January of 2023. So to find out more about that, go to gpshope.org slash cruise, and there will also be a link for that in the show notes. I hope that you really consider joining us for a retreat, the cruise, something, because it really is wonderful and healing to be around other parents who understand exactly what you are going through and the struggles we have. And it's just a wonderful thing to do. So I really hope you consider checking these out. Let's get to the birthdays this week. Carissa Perkins was born on December 21st and is forever 29. Dylan Bieber was born on December 21st and is forever 16. Jonathan Granick was born on December 21st and is forever 36. James Anthony Walkley was born on December 23rd and is forever 28. John Ferreira Jr. 
was born on December 24th and is forever 32. Ryan Durkin was born on December 27th and is forever 19. We know this will always remain a special day for each of these families when their child came into the world and we celebrate this day with them. If you would like to have your child's birthday announce the week of his or her birthday here on our podcast and share them with our listeners, I would be honored to do that. All you have to do is go to gpshope.org slash birthdays, fill out the form, submit it, and we will add them to our list and share them with the listeners. I know this can be an especially difficult week for many of us. It can be outright brutal those first couple of years. And if you're listening to this later, we hit Christmas this week. And I just want to encourage you, just take it one day, one hour, one breath at a time, if that's where you are. I know it may not seem like it, but please remember to H-O-P-E, hold on pain eases. It really does. There is hope.